Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig in to the scriptures using a text from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University. And uh, my guest this week is Aaron Perry. Aaron is Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology and Christian Leadership for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. And Aaron's a longtime guest on the show, off and on over the many years, and helped get this show started many years ago. And our text today comes from the book of James, James chapter 3, uh, verse 13, uh, through chapter 4, verse 3, plus a little bonus text, uh, verse 7 through 8a. So it's a kind of complicated number this week, but uh, we'll survive. So that's our text for today. If you want to get turning there and we'll jump in here in a moment. If you're enjoying this show uh, while you're listening and you want to pass it along to others, just hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice so that others can enjoy the text as well. And if you'd like to become a uh, patron saint who supports the show and get some extra content, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. That's patreon.com slash fresh text. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aaron. So we're looking at James chapter 3, verse 13 through 4, verse 3, and then a little... A little bonus, seven and eight a, just to kind of complete the thought. So, um, would you be willing to read the passage? Sure. Aaron. So, thirteen to three, and then seven eight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Eight a, but who cares? You can do all eight. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe wash your hands is appropriate in this season. There you go. There you go. <laughs> James three thirteen and following says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But... The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. There ends our reading. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your wisdom the wisdom by which you created all things and the wisdom that descends down from from you as the father of lights and the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so we dare to ask for uh, 
this gift of wisdom and understanding, not the, the false kind from below uh, that is selfish and uh, creates dissent and conflict and strife, but the wisdom from above that leads to peace and communion with you and with one another. So we ask for this wisdom in general, of course, but specifically as expositors of the word, that what we notice and tease out of this text would be guided by you and your divine wisdom. We ask this, we hope, with pure motives, and insofar as our motives are impure, purify our hearts that we may receive what we ask for. We draw near to you, trusting your promise to draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Arian, what do you notice? I think of you as a wise fellow, and I thought you might dig this text. <laughs> quite, a, quite a setup there. So maybe that, maybe that ties into like the first thing is like anybody who, who dares to write about wisdom. As you do. It, it's, already, <laughs> it's already something, right? It's, al- it's already, mm-hmm. uh, it's already um, obviously there's a measure of confidence that goes with writing about wisdom that is uh, obviously not antithetical to humility here, right? There's, mm-hmm. something, there's something going on that James says, I can write about this and it's not against the very thing that I'm talking to you about, right? I'm not, I'm not being hypocritical with it, right? Yeah, I mean, James is, from a, just a kind of literary point of view, uh, is, is a wisdom writer, you know? I mean, he's, wisdom's clearly an important theme in the sense of the concept of wisdom. He talks about it at the beginning of the book. It's one of the very first topics out of the gate, um, but also in the broader sense of the, the wisdom tradition of the scriptures, the Proverbs, you know, people who like James usually like Proverbs, or should I say my wife's two favorite books when I first met her, where she was like, she was one of those people who like memorized the book of James in high school and like, or most of it, I guess. And, and like read a chapter of Proverbs every day. Like it was like the practical wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. The way you'd live and having a clear picture of a well-rounded virtuous life and constantly having that before your eyes so that you can lean into it. Of course, there's a whole bunch of other wisdom literature that isn't in most Protestant Bibles, you know, the kind of Greek parts of the Old Testament, the wisdom of Solomon and other things. And there's tons of connections between James and that literature. He clearly like has read this or at least is emerging out of the same culture that that's emerging out of. That's kind of a geeky point, but sort of intended to confirm your instinct of it. But that this is a kind of problem of authorship, like, because wisdom is not showy. And right, so how do you talk about wisdom in a non-hypocritical way? He even lists that as one of the features of yeah. divine wisdom is unhypocritical, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and evidently there's, there's some kind of knowledge of, of who they're receiving this from and this being a letter that's circulating around that mm. this is not an ambitious person. Whatever they're doing is, is um, there's enough credibility. They're not, they're not, manipulating they're not writing this to obtain their own credibility or to um increase their own honor right they're not they're not uh creating disorder in a sense by doing this right these are this is this is given in a way it's instructive but as it's circulated among the churches is to help them 
be peaceable. It's to help them have good order in the church and that this is something that's going to reflect well. Um, well, as James will say elsewhere, right? this is something that will reflect well among, among or what Peter will say elsewhere. It will reflect well among those among whom they, among whom they live, right? The, yeah. the way that they, if they take this and apply it, it will reflect well to the world. No, I like the, and the, the Peter connection is relevant too, because they're in many ways, these are like the wisdom books of the new Testament, both first Peter and James. And they both, especially second Peter, but, but, but first Peter too, and James, they both do these, like these, like lists of virtues, which I thought you might as not to geek out too much, but you and I are both uh, very influenced by the, those who write about virtues and like virtue as a theory for ethics and stuff like that. We've talked about that before and we don't have to go into that today if you don't want to, but, but I was struck by this, this kind of rattling off of lists, you know, that, that so clearly indicate that wisdom is not an exclusively intellectual virtue. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, cause like verse 17 could have read, and this is just for our listeners, a, a fun game to play in exegesis. And you can do this with any, I mean, I do it with teenagers and they totally get it where you say like, so how, what, what could have he said? Like write a different version and then think through why he didn't, why, and it helps you see his, the intention sometimes of the author, you know, cause you could think verse 17 says, but wisdom from above is um, insightful and knowledgeable and clear and perceptive. Like you could rattle off a bunch of cognitive mm. virtues, right? But none of them are that. They're all moral <laughs> virtues, right? It's first of all pure. Okay, maybe that one is unclear without more context. But then peaceable. See, that's about relations with other people. Um, gentle, open to reason. Right? And that, that's a nice, that's both intellectual and moral as a virtue, open to reason, right? Re- being reasonable. Because it's about relationships. It's about willing to listen to someone's reasons. Uh, full of mercy mm. and good fruits. Like you could think of someone as wise, but okay. So you can't be wise without being merciful, good fruits, impartial, sincere, or impartial and unhypocritical. And then harvest of righteousness, you know, peace. So then the results are righteousness, but even the very nature of wisdom is this highly social, relational, moral, like a way of life, which I know is, should be obvious, but, it's so easy to think of wisdom as something like up in your head, as mm. it were, you know, I don't know what you think about that. Well, it's, I mean, the way he ends that, that section before he goes into some rhetorical questions, he says, peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness or justice. And God's righteousness is not something that just is harbored in God. It's something that has an effect in the world. Right. And I'm thinking of that, that wisdom here is leading towards that. It's like wisdom is not simply, it's just hidden. It's something that has an effect in the world. The person, or as he starts it out, the person who is wise, let him show it by his good life, right? It's, it's wisdom is going to have a good effect in the world. And if there aren't good effects, then probably isn't wisdom, right? There mm-hmm. might be other virtues. There might be other things that he could have written the list with, but it's not going to count for what James is after as wisdom here. That's good. I, I, I'm glad you brought up God. I mean, just generally, it's probably good to bring up God, but <laughs> it's interesting how the scriptures speak both of God's knowing all things, although most of the time when God's omniscience is referenced, it's in the context of divine judgment, like God knows everything, mm. He's, right? So it actually has a very specific application. 
Um, but just as often, if not more frequently, the scriptures don't actually speak of God's omniscience. It speaks of God's wisdom, which are, I mean, they're overlapping concepts, but like um, the language of omniscience can be so philosophical. It's this distant God who knows facts, right? But wisdom implies what you just said. It has to do with God's dealings with us, the way he works with us, his timing, his intentions, his planning, his patience, his, I guess that's all in some ways suggested by the language of from above in verse 17, right? Wisdom from above, Mm. right? Which I think I mentioned this in my prayer back to chapter one, the, the father of lights from whom above, from whom descends all good gifts, right? So that imagery of from above suggests this is a, this is not just like modeled on God, but actually like sort of coming from God. It's actually yeah. his wisdom kind of somehow making its way down into our bodies and souls. I don't know. Well, yeah, like maybe we could play on the word then uh, humility by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So this is wisdom that's from above and, but it's not uh, disconnected from the earth. So I think about humility, you know, lowly, low to the ground, right. you know, you know, can play with that a little bit. It's, Ooh, it's, yeah. it's wisdom from above that has an effect in the everyday, right? It's, it's having an effect in the everyday rather than earthly wisdom, right? Something from below that's having an effect in the everyday, but it's a detrimental effect, right? It's causing disorder. It's causing strife. And maybe you can, we can contrast then James has this sense of, I love that phrase he has. Uh, if you harbor, uh, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, Right, that being like the, the mm. opposite of what would come from above, right? Rather than rather than envy, there's generosity that God has. Rather than selfish ambition, there's Christ who lays his life down. Right, the opposite of ambition. Um, so I'm thinking about that shifting my my mindset of it. Right, that that you can have wisdom from below that takes up residence in the heart, or you can have wisdom from above that takes up residence in the heart. Both are going to have an earthly impact. Both mm-hmm. are going to make their way out and have an impact in the world. Just what kind of impact is it, is it going to be? Yeah, I probably don't want to, I want to be careful to not read too much into the implied cosmology of the passage because it's a metaphor. Let it be what it is. Right. But it is kind of wisdom from heaven impacting earth and wisdom from hell (laughs) impacting earth. Right. You can almost think of, of the earth as the the place where these two kinds of wisdom play out. Right. So from below might not mean from earth. It might mean from below the earth, as it were, because there's that reference to the demonic at the end. Right. It says earthly. Okay. Well, earthly could be good, could be bad. Depends what you mean by that. Right. right? Um, Unspiritual. Okay. That's more that could be okay if you mean like just flesh in the sense of bodies that God created. But clearly unspiritual means not of the spirit. Okay. So that's bad. Demonic. Okay, that's like as bad as you can get, right? So, I mean, the triplet there is kind of increasingly obvious in its evilness, right? And so then the last word, demonic, uh, in some ways, uh, expands and exposits the previous terms and how we should understand them, right? right? Earthly in the sense of almost from in the earth. I mean, I, again, I don't want to overdo the cosmology here, but the imagery of the time would have been uh, the, the place of evil is down under, mm-hmm. right? The earth mm-hmm. with the God being up in heaven, right? So that's just a thought, but they're both, they're both kind of warring out here on the earth as the kind of, you know, you know, up above the earth at the top of the earth where we are is kind of where these two kinds of wisdom are competing. I wonder if there's a, a, an element of temporality that comes from earthly as well, 
Yeah. Right? So the connection okay. with the spirit, right? Life, life is not uh, the the earth does not have life within it until right. the spirit is breathed into. So the breath of God comes in. And I wonder if there's an element we can think about uh, temporality, right? It's it's limited. It doesn't have life within itself. Yeah. It, it fail. It's failing, right? And so those things, flesh and Paul, fle- right? Yeah, it has that temporal. Fleshly, yeah. yeah. It goes yeah. the way of all flesh. Maybe and maybe then I think about you come from the earth, you return uh, to the earth, from dust yeah, to exactly. dust. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yes, perfect. There's yeah. uh, there's a a limited nature to it. I mean, the irony is if we pretend if we pretend in our limited selves that we're unlimited, if we pretend we have omniscience, mm-hmm. then we reveal that we have even less knowledge than we pretend. Yes, right. So maybe maybe think about that the the earthly thing, and then I think about what does earthly wisdom look like. Maybe it's something that looks like a good idea at the time, but <laughs> obviously is going to have some repercussions not too far away, right? So then I think about uh, peacemakers who sow in peace yes. raise a harvest of righteousness. There are some ways that we live out, quote unquote, wisdom that has an immediate effect, but is going to sow it something seems other to be than righteousness. For justice, it seems to be pursuing peace, but actually It's doesn't. doing something, right? Do something. Oh, yes, yeah. that's good. There's a hastiness, right? Maybe you can work that into it too, like... There's a there's a there's a hastiness that comes to such such wisdom. Well, that sets up this turn to prayer here at the end. So let's take a pause in the second half of the passage. So let's take a break there and come back and explore it some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aaron Perry. Uh, who helped start this podcast forever ago now. This is like episode 143. So we've been going on forever. So anyway, great to have you back. So uh, let's hear the text again. I'll just read through it and then we can explore it some more. So who is wise and understanding among you? By their good conduct, let that one show their works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that descends from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and of good fruits, impartial and unhypocritical. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Ye have not because ye ask not. (laughs) You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it 
on your passions. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, so you mentioned that that hastiness and the, 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 the implied temporal structure. I, I flip and love that. We might come back to that. Because that. you think of the Adam's creation, right? Is He's out of the earth. He, it's literally the word for earth or land, you know, ha'adam, the land. But he's earthly and rendered spiritual because mm-hmm. God's breath is put into him and therefore divine. Mm-hmm. Not God, but divine, right? Participating in God's, right? So that's, and that's kind of temporal. We're from the earth. Right. Yeah. But by God's spirit, we are more than merely earthly. Um, and our destiny is to be to participate in God's uh, divine life. Right. So you have those are both like heading. It's just interesting how earthly can head in either direction, which makes sense. Why then the human would be the the, the theater of the battle between um, the divine and the demonic. Right. Because we're kind of made of this stuff that could go either way. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too philosophical, but again, this is wisdom literature. And in this era, wisdom meant wisdom, you know, was philosophical, you know, love of wisdom, philosophy, right? Philosophy was connected to the pursuit of virtue. It wasn't just puzzles in the abstract. It was meant to be connected. Even the cosmologies and the psychologies and the theories about the soul were all linked to the formation in the way of life, you know, so I just loved that temporal sequence that you suggested because it can go either way. Um, but yeah, that hastiness really struck me because of the way this passage turns towards prayer, really, right? Like asking, right? I assume it's saying asking God, right? Um, which links back to chapter one, which said, if you don't have wisdom, ask for it, right? So this is in many ways kind of picking back up some earlier themes, uh, even the rest of verse eight, the the, the lectionary in its uh, wisdom, whether that wisdom is earthly or heavenly, we can. <laughs> the second half of verse eight is cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify yourself. You double-minded. That's a yep. that's also a adjective used in chapter one. Um, so don't ask with double-minded reasons. Ask purely. Ask with faith, and God will grant you wisdom, as He did to Solomon. You know, from above. The, the passage goes on with verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, right? Yes. Is, like, that's it, the imagery again you were talking, the, the down and up. That's right. There's this, there, and it brings to mind a, a beautiful line that St. Augustine has in the Confessions that we have to go down through ourselves to Christ who will lift us up, right? Yes. Th- this, is, this is the yes. paradox, and, and it goes back to James. Who is wise and understanding among you, right? There's, you know, there, every church has conflict one way or another. Mm-hmm. There's always some kind of vying for for influence. And I think it doesn't have to always be totally, you know, misguided or nefarious, right? So, you know, we, we, we uh, these struggles happen. There are mm-hmm. struggles. Um, Motives are mixed. There's a desire for righteousness and justice, but also yeah. a desire for power. And, sure. And, 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 and they're all mixed in together. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's like... Um, this humility has has to be completely dependent on God, right? To go down through ourselves, yeah. to to be relying on Christ to be the one who lifts us up, and maybe maybe the reason that it, it 
James has James is addressing it, and that we have to keep talking about it, is that it's really tough to know how you live this out. Yeah. Right? It actually really is hard to know because we're deceitful to ourselves. We don't we don't always know ourselves, mm-hmm. right? That the tongue is deceitful, right? All these things that James Starr talked about. We we don't really know ourselves. And so perhaps some of this even starts with uh, a recognition of, of humility that if I'm going to truly know myself, I still have to receive that from others. I have to receive that from God. Yeah. Right? I only know myself whenever God is the one who's revealing myself to me. And, and uh, we were chatting before the episode started about the importance of prayer. Um, you know, you think about Solomon asking mm. for wisdom. James is here. It's like, what, what do you ultimately want? I mean, what you want is what's going to reveal who you, who you are, right? Your desires right. are going to reveal who you are. And, and if those are in check with your words to God in what you're requesting of God, now you've got an insight, right? You have to pay attention to yourself. What, what are the, what are the things that come out of my mouth that I'm seeking from God? And you know, there's a piece of that like, Oh, if I'm consistently asking for X, Y, and Z, that seems to be earthly and spiritual, uh. perhaps of the devil. Then there's some, then I, Oh, there's a chance to check yourself in this. Huh? That's really good. Cause he really does highlight this movement from desire, you know, to the obstacles to our desires, to our quarreling, ultimately murder flows from this. Yeah. Right. Um, and the first murder was a, you know, an act of covetousness and of jealousy, you know, between Cain and Abel. Right. So, yeah, so the desires and then the prayer is the making known, you know, speaking your desires to God, which is humbling in and of itself. I mean, I'm hearing an implication in what you're saying. Tell me if this is right, that that James' invitation to pray here in the context of wisdom, pursuing wisdom, is at least twofold. It's both that... The wisdom comes from above, so you have to ask for it. You, you can't get it from yourself, right? It's from another. But also the very posture of prayer is itself um, a kind of enwisening, mm-hmm. right? It has a kind of – there's mm-hmm. a there's a wisdom built into the humbling structure, the dependent structure of prayer, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's a little more subtle. But he seems to imply it when he says, you know, you, you – when you don't get what you ask for, it's because you're asking for the wrong motives, right? So it's implied that the actual act of prayer needs some purification. It needs some transformation and it takes place through the practice. Wow. Okay. So you had a quote from Augustine. So I will, in, in keeping with my habit and of our relationship, in fact, is to offer uh, a quote from Aquinas uh, <laughs> to follow up. Uh, he has this great line where he refers to prayer as the interpreter of desire. Mm. Isn't that great? And it fits kind of what you were saying. It's, it's, and it runs both ways. It's like prayer manifests our desires, which then raises the question of maybe I should be praying differently, but also the other way around. It also is kind of helping us, interpret and make sense of perhaps a deeper desire, a, a more pure desire that God gives us. Right. So it's kind of the arrow both runs as interpretation always is, is interpretation finding what's there or um, uh, actually somewhat creating something that was not there until the interpreter come along. And the answer is, well, yes, it's doing both. You know, it's, it's a conversation between a reader and a text where we normally think of interpretation. I just love that imagery. Prayer is the interpreter 
of desire. Mm. And if our desires are mixed and complicated as they are, and like you say, self-deceived, it implies that the prayer is where those things become clear, where we discover what we really want and what we want to want to go back to Augustine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Give me chastity, Lord, but not yet, (laughs) which is implying, give me the desire to desire (laughs) what I ought to desire. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's no end to that rabbit hole unless God, cuts it off and yes. cha- changes the root, right? Which is great for James right here, right? That what what's at the what's at the root, right? What's the what's right. the genesis point? And it's like there needs to be that transformation from uh an envy and selfish ambition in your heart to uh uh humility um sub- that's uh well, it has to be a transformation of that to something that is pure, right? That is that is humble. Yeah, so what else do you see here before we uh, transition to some sermon well, starters? Just any other observations yeah. or interpretive questions you want to explore? I wanted to come back to that one about if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition. Mm. And we, we might not be able to uproot that on our own. We certainly can't. Mm. But being agents, as human beings have been given a measure of agency, we can harbor that, right? We can build up structures around selfish ambition and envy. We can guard that. Right? I can't remember who who it was, but it was one of the it's famous line from uh, one of the the German officers in World War II that seeing what he knew needed to be done, and this was in the injustice against against Jewish people, he had this line where he said, "Be hard, my heart," right? To harden his to harden his own heart. And what does it mean to build up structures around selfish ambition and ah. envy so that, that that's what we protect, right? That we protect that that root, which we can't uproot. We can't uproot it on our own, but we do build structures around it to guard that. What are some of those, you think? What are the things that we do to harbor? What is the peer, you know, if you think of a harbor, what are the, the peers that we build to yeah. make the harbor more effective to yeah. and to disguise them from ourselves? Yeah, we lie. Right. Yeah. We certainly don't. We don't live honestly. I mean, we could probably First to ourselves. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then to, you know, mm-hmm. that's the, the total sinister nature of lying is that mm-hmm. you stop realizing when you're doing it. Right. So those I mean, there's an element of hope in this, though, like that James is yeah. writing. If anybody would actually hear what he's writing, it's a sense of like, oh, if I hear and understand then I'm not lost, right? There's there's a there's an yeah. invitation into this. You know, it's not like it's not like James is writing this for us us in the church to read to You're interpret like, the world. Yeah. It's no, it's written to or the church. our enemies in the church, right. <laughs> our silly enemies it's, in the it's church. Ri- it's written for us to, to. Oh, this is for this is to me and for me. And uh, yeah, um, Fleming Rutledge has the the sermon about uh, the good news of sin. Right when you recognize mm. that moment of recognition. Right. Oh. Awakening to sin awakening. is also the moment of awakening of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we lie. You know, we certainly do that. We boast, as James would say. Yeah, uh, which is a kind of lying. Um, what else do we do? I don't know. Does anything come to mind for you? Well, one thing did. I just as you were talking, I was thinking of this is this is the sinister power of uh, ideology. Mm. Right? So it's just like how often am I pursuing? To win, to have power, to have influence, to have authority in order to pursue what I perceive to be good and just and right, you know, because there's, I've been captured by 
you know, some kind of ideology, you know, that like said that just that where the means get justified by the ends as mm-hmm. it were, you know, and, yeah. and I can see it in other people all the time, but I'm trying to learn how to see it in myself, right. Where I could see someone speaking with just confidence and clarity about um, the way things should be. And it's so obvious that there's is also, it's a thinly veiled ambition. It's their own power. They are seeking to depose others from power, perhaps who did bad things, right? Uh, so that they can have the power. <laughs> and I think it's one of the games that it's part of the self-deception, especially in the modern world where, you know, there's always ideas and systems running around. I know that's not on James's mind at first, but I, just, I think it could be a factor mm-hmm. in the ways that we then actually are harboring. Sure. Selfish, what is it? Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. I think yours had a different term than jealousy. Uh, bitter it's envy and selfish ambition. Envy, envy. Yeah, it's, it's zealous, yeah. right? So, yeah, zealous, it's a zeal for zeal. something other than God. Yeah. Actually, zeal works well, right? Yeah. Because zeal can be good zeal. if 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 understood in its proper contexts. So, yeah, bitter zeal, bitter zeal. Yeah, jealousy, envy. Those terms all work. It often is contextual. Which one is the better? English word. It's more the circumstance. What was the word that you? Yeah, and zeal. We can, and we tend to think of people. You know, like I mean, just think of what it's like on social media. How much like when someone is oh. zealous for their team, and how we all, yeah, yeah, and and they get a lot of blowback, and they're like, wow, they're suffering, they're being a martyr for, you know, for our team, and it's the ideology that leads to that kind of mm. blind. Maybe not leads to it, but it's one of the things that harbors it. I don't think it's the cause, but it's one of the, it's a pier that we can build to make the harbor, to keep the jealousy yeah. in and the zealous, the, the zealousy to make up a word uh, in rather than to let it go and release it and to be reasonable and gentle. And let me try out an image that's coming please. to mind. So, cause we're, we're using the, the word zeal and then jealous, uh, zealous and jealous. And you said, when you said about the person who is zealous for their team, and the there's a there's an element that where they are in right that that they so I'll use a very menial example the New England Patriots mm-hmm. there are people who are zealous for <laughs> menial the example in, isn't they're yeah, zealous right. for the New England Patriots yeah. okay I am not okay and so one of the uh, could I have cheered for the New England Patriots somewhere along the line sure there, was there something that I controlled in that not it just it just didn't happen could I start to cheer for them now no now I can't I cannot change the nature of my affinity towards that team or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. So what those who are on the inside who are zealous will say is that I am jealous. And so there's a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, it's an inner and out. That's right. Whether you're on the inside or the outside, that's the same feeling. It's the same relation. It's just from two different perspectives. And to to bring it back to the ideology, there is a kind of, uh, jealousy as James will say, never builds anything up. It results in yes, disorder. It's disorder. But we still attempt to turn our jealousy into zeal, right? We attempt to turn our jealousy into zeal to construct our own thing. And now the image I have in mind is warring castles, right? Two structures built on on zeal or jealousy mm-hmm. that can't do anything except Well, we, I have to build a higher wall because they just got a new weapon. That's exactly it's not right. my fault. It's their fault. They're the aggressor. Fight, right. Fights and quarrels among you, right? And, and it doesn't have to – Arms can be, race. It can be both – I mean the sad thing is 
you see physical fights at sporting events because one team is winning yeah. and the other team is not, right? Like it actually goes right into the yeah. very earthly. Or the injustice of, the an umpire, of umpire's of it. call. Right? That's it. It, go, it, it, goes, <laughs> it goes right into the very earthly things. And yet it also goes into the very systems of the earth, right? The, yes. the, the very systems of the earth in which we live and move and, and hopefully don't have our being, but we do live and move mm-hmm. in these kinds of things. So I'm, I'm, some of this is on my mind because I'm reading uh, David Coises's book, Political Ideologies. And that's what, that's what he's talking okay. about is that our ideologies are always have elements of idolatry. So yep. one of the things he says to come at them is we always, and this goes back to the word that you had earlier that James had about being um, open-minded was it open-minded or reasonable mm-hmm, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is coises will say we must always see what's the element of truth in something before yes. we start to see where it goes wrong right because he says idolatry is taking something and elevating it to be uh more than what it is it's taking something in, good and making it higher than the best higher, higher than god so that's a bit of a word uh image that came to mind about those castles being built up against one another. I love it. Yeah. So even what is, even what is, so the wisdom from below, which does build up towers of Babel, right? The the issue isn't up versus down. It's the trajectory, right? If that, which comes from above does come down, that's humility. And then he, as it says, God will lift you up, Mm. you know, in the final verse here, 10, a little past our section, but it's really the culmination of the argument versus Right. That which lifts itself up, God will bring down. Yeah. Right. That's the it's the trajectory. And, yeah. and what mercy of God to bring it down before it gets too high. Mm-hmm. You know, before you the, get out of your the the, the, the it, before it's, Icarus gets too close to the sun. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's the it's the mercy of God that that yes. brings down earthly wisdom so that it's not falling from an ever greater height because it will fall. Mm-hmm. It does crumble. No, oh, that's really good. That's really good. Well, let's take a quick break and uh, explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Aaron Perry, and we're looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 through uh, chapter 4. I don't know, verse 3. You can go to verse 8. You can go to verse 10. It's up to you. (laughs) So, yeah, what's... uh, where would you want to go with it? What's your winkle? Remember that question? What's That's your angle? Good, such a good one. Right? <laughs> you taught me that. What's your angle, you know? Uh, if you were preaching on this text, where would you want to kind of head? What direction do you want to take? I think, I think the, uh, where I might want to start, and I don't, I don't have, I don't have, it's not clear in my mind, but I'm trying to think of, is there something that I could name that everybody who would have some kind of zeal for it's a good thing. Mm. And then is there a way that I could show how over being overzealous for this turned mm-hmm. sinister, right? And that, and that, that being the switch, that being the the turn. Cause I think, I mean, we've, we've named that and gone and gone at that. And James has, has been all around that as well. well. It's great. The, the adjective here is great. Bitter yeah. zeal. Yeah. Right. So that implies that, it went bitter, which means it went too long, mm. right? Too much of a good thing, right? Zeal in its proper place, you know? It's it's an act of, of zeal when my child is climbing at the playground and starts to fall and I run to catch him, 
That's, and that's the exact same energy that then when I see another kid ready to punch them, that I might come and interfe- intervene. Uh, but it's also the same zeal that then when my kid is punching, I want to look for the reasons why he had a reason to punch that kid, right? It's like you can see how it can go too far, right? But it has a root in just human relations that is not intrinsically evil. No, um, if we had no, had zeal, no yeah, you'd have no society. We'd be a rock. Zeal. Right. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd, and, and that's a reason why some of, you know, the, the, the teaching against excess zeal has led again and again throughout Christian tradition to, uh, you know, hermetic life, right? Becoming a hermit. Because in some sense, the only way to avoid completely root out these vices is to be alone. The problem is, is you also don't get to develop the virtues alone. That's the problem. So it, it works really good for like solitude is great for repentance, right? Yeah. For the turning away, the cleansing. But, and that's why hermits within a generation usually end up forming communities, monastic communities, because you actually need to live it out mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, because peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. If you're in a cave, you either don't have those or they're irrelevant. Right, because those are about relations with other people. Right? How many people who had selfish ambition end up completely alone? Yeah, and they're still they're still selfishly ambitious. Right. Better a thousandth in love than than resentment hidden away in isolated caves. You know, it's the picture of C.S. Lewis's picture of hell, right? Where it's the town that the people move further and further and further away from each other. Right. Oh, like our life. It's suburban life. No, I'm just <laughs> but people still gather in, in we suburbia, do. right? There's, we do. We can't. It's like we or, can't let get me away rephrase, from that, right? uh, uh, Pandemic quarantining, oh, right? Yeah. Why? Why we think of it? Why it feels like hell on earth? Yeah. When you think I'm, I'm still doing my job in some sense, and you know, uh, why is it so bad? Well, that's why. It's because isolation is, yeah, uh, ultimately not, and that's why some of us like. I mean, I hate to, I mean, how many of these episodes we end up talking about pandemic stuff, but it's like, there were a lot of goods on the front end. Like, oh, okay. I'm focusing on my family. I'm kind of getting a lot of work done. It's right. A, or it's a Sabbath. Or, oh, right. Oh, right. Slow down. Right? right. And there was some of that. Right. And the, that's what I'm trying to say is like, there was a stepping away from some of the excesses of social life, but it doesn't take long to wither in that, you know, because actually these are, we're called, we're social beings, we're, yeah. you know? And so anyway, that was just me camping out on bitter. The idea of how does our zeal go bitter? I mean, it's a yeah. whole sermon, dude. Like, and I would want to then jump around and link, draw some things in from the text and talk about what is the, yeah. cause then what is the solution to zeal? Is it lacking any passion at all? No, it's humility. Yeah. So to have a humble, a zeal that's humbled. Yeah. Right, yeah. uh, a, f- a, f- a fan of the Patriots that can say, "Yeah, I can kind, of, I can see it from that perspective." <laughs> right, like, yeah, there's- a reasonable, reasonable enthusiasm. To quote a phrase for that was used to talk about Wesley, the reasonable enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Right, that that there's an openness to reason here, a, a give and take, while still having an appropriate measure of zeal. So you're you're saying what would be kind of one that would really click? So there could be local things, but what would be some common common things that everyone would kind of get as the zeal for 
You said you were trying just, to kind of search. Well, ge- gesturing toward it, maybe we could. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a. It's a bit older now. Okay. But um, the Hunger Games, right? Like those those who are against the the empire of the capital turn to become those who just run their own capital, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and Katniss has this this realization that oh the the one that she has been serving well I mean no I'm kidding you right should be able to see it coming it's a, yeah it's you know, a trope in yeah, storytelling ex- exactly right? exactly right you know that's the we, we become like that which we're fighting against yes so I mean that's that's done well if it's good fiction they do they it's yeah. that's done well Saruman is another one right he becomes what he's fighting against right from the Lord of the Rings um it's harder. I mean, and and maybe that's where I would go. Is want to, I'd want to stay with something that's fiction. That's a good the, idea. The moment that you turn that into reality is the moment that you're setting. You're giving an example that is not you. And pe- yeah, F- fiction always gives you something that you can see. That's yourself a good in. point. And people put their walls up, you know, on the, yeah, on the issue. Yeah, yeah. So you might get there eventually in the application, but it's not going to be helpful as an opening illustration, you know, mm-hmm. of that seal. Yeah, no, I, that's a good point. So to, to, that's a good point about the place of fiction and the and and how helpful it can be. Wow, huh? Well, that's well, going to keep me up all night to, to go with zeal and ju- that pattern in, in literature. But go l- ahead. Like the moment you call out bitter zeal in somebody else is the moment that they can simply say, "Oh, you're jealous," right? Like uh, to call out the, the yes. bitter zealousness is to point out. Oh, there's jealousness, right? There's je- bitter jealousy. There's je- you know, however, those uh, however you want to break language jealous, to, make jealous, the, yeah. to make the the language work for the making it a um, a noun. But um, you know, the moment that you do that, so you have you would have to come at it in a way, and so maybe you take two or three different different tacks for it because not one illustration. Maybe you recognize uh, disorder, another word from mm-hmm. James here. Um, can be the benefit of disorder is that it can be illustrated in multiple ways. True. Yeah. Right. So, so maybe we could, you can the opening have like land of Anna Karenina, all happy families are the same. All miserable families are miserable in their own oh, unique way, yeah. <laughs> maybe, but there's some truth in that. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's different ways that you could point out the, the good is ultimately one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, and, it's a unity. Yeah. You know, depending on your congregation, I would, I depend on the congregation. If there was one that knew me well, they would know about my bitter, uh, envy of the New England Patriots. Right, so you could, so you could, you you could, could tease yourself. You could exactly. It would be ideal. If you're going to use real-world examples, at least in the front end of a sermon, or the whole sermon for that matter, I think that's just, you're offering really good homiletical advice, is, is if it can be something that of which you are chief of sinners, that will yep. be that would be a preferable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in a lighthearted enough way that, that yeah. people are brought into the conflict, they're they're not now, wrestling, am I learning from the chief of sinners, right? Like, like is there is there something in my preacher's life that, that I should be wondering or curious about, right? It has to be done. It has to be done sensitively because precisely it can't be about you. It has to be done in a way that introduces what the, the tension is of the text rather than a shortcoming and failure in your own life, right? Yeah, my uh, – this is – this is a Christmas season thing, so it's not great for a sermon that wouldn't be during that time, although maybe it could be. But my father grew up with very almost quasi-rigid Christmas traditions that were zealously pursued. Right, And so his big thing when we were growing up was like, oh, our tradition is we have no traditions. We do Christmas different every year, you know. 
but it didn't take long for him to have like zeal about that. So that like, sometimes we would like say, can we do the such and such we did last year? Be like, no, we already did that. You know, like it's kind of ironic, right? Mm-hmm. That you can have that kind of, that counter zeal that you can't see in yourself. I, I liked that about what you were pointing out that, oh, you're just jealous is what you dismiss. Right. And to learn to, um, and then I'm, I'm the same problem, right. As I, I'm very like, I've overcorrected. Like I really want to have like ritual. I love rituals, you know, and my wife knows that. And I was just saying about something, I was something that I didn't get to do and was kind of, yeah, but I was trying to talk myself out of not like, I shouldn't care kind of thing. And she was like, John, you love rituals and you didn't get to enjoy that particular ritual. And you're, and you're, and I'm like, thank you, man. He likes, like, I feel known by you, but mm. you know, in a moment of criticism, she could be able to also point out like, Hey, maybe a little, there's some bitter zeal in your attachment to that ritual. Um, that might not connect, but I just, it's more of that. Some of that is just pitching to mix in with uh not for the, for the non-sports fans, the, yeah. the sport, the sports metaphors tire us uh, occasionally, <laughs> so, well, to get into, like, but just a few examples, you know, yeah. of the different ways that we zealously pursue a good, but it can go bitter because the zeal gets in excess. I know we're just camping out on one word here, but I think it gets to the heart does, of the right? passage. You, you don't have At least what the diagnostic want, part of the passage. Right? You don't have what you want. You yes. put that in terms of, of the, the one's pursuit of a lover, Right. That somebody you desire you do not have. Somebody desires a lover, and how much more do they desire them when somebody else wins their heart? Right, and suddenly zeal does become jealousy. No, right, like perfect. that's another way perfect. that you could yes. come at it. Is you know that which you want becomes so much more attractive when you can't have it. Yeah, you know, grass is greener on the other side. Right, of the fence. right, we, right. Like we've we've put that into cliche and lines that are and we've told things all are kinds cliches of for a reason. That's exactly yeah. right. Like we've yeah. put this into any number of stories. So you could find what you could find this, the, the something good turned uh, because it become, it, it was the good that became the best, right? It was the good that became too, too much. There's several ways that you could le- really lean into that. Yeah. Sports, family rituals, uh, church rituals, music styles, etc. cetera. Uh, but the context of lovers, there's all lots of clear examples of how this plays out in our everyday lives. And then I think really transitioning into the sermon, for me, it would be a very natural kind of narrative sermon where I'm kind of diagnosing the problem for about half the sermon and then then turning to the hope and the grace for the second half. And that would, I think, really be focused in on prayer as the practice of humility, the humbling practice, the, the wise, humbling practice by which we ask for wisdom, for wise humility, right? It's like the God will give you the meekness of wisdom because you ask and even as you ask, right? I want to play with that. The idea that even the act of asking is already uh, a movement in the right direction, right? Because mm-hmm. there's some, there's a, there's a meekness and a wisdom, the, the, the meekness of, of knowing I don't have it and the wisdom of knowing where I can get it. <laughs> right. That it comes from above, from above, which means I want to do that imagery from above, which means I'm below. Right. If it's from above, that means I need to be below. So I need to stop trying to be up above others, which is the selfish ambition. Again, yeah. it's the trying to be above others. Yes. So there could be some humorous stuff earlier in the sermon, even just you could play with the up down imagery. If you're a more poetic preacher style, less, more, less, less illustrations and more 
images, you know, you could play with how like guys will sit next to each other, like try to be a little taller, right? Or like go to a board meeting where they have the, the chairs a little higher. Every time, man. I'd Power pump, moves. Pump, pump, chair, yeah. <laughs> pump, pump it down on the other side. <laughs> um, and, and prayer is also, it's already an act of faith because it's presuming that God is yeah. hearing us. And maybe I'll get into that with, with this illustration, what's have in mind. Just this morning, I'm talking to my son, Wesley, and his teacher has given them different categories for different voices to use. So you have your regular, you have like a recess voice, and that's a big voice you use. That's right. right. And then you have a table voice that you use with your with your classmates nice. who are right near you. And you have a, 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 a thumb to pinky voice or six inch voice, which is a little bit quieter that you're just talking with your neighbor, but, a, and then you have a whisper, right? There's, there's these different voices. And so I'm thinking about like the boisterous voice, right? The, the arrogant voice is the one that is, thinks that I need to raise my voice in order for God to, to hear ah. me. But, but no, there's, there's a part of this that can I, can I intentionally decrease the volume of my prayer? Not necessarily mm. specifically, but I mean, there's a way I think about decreasing the volume of my prayer is an act of faith that uh, God is coming near to me, right? I can, I can respond. That's what it says. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. It's not humility is not God is so far away. He can barely hear me. I need to reach up. It's that God has already humbled himself. That's right. So the the Um, faith, right? It's from above is a relation, not a distance. Right. Right. I can remember that from above is a relation, not a distance. It's a relation of dependence and humility, not a distance. He's not far away from above. Doesn't mean far away. It's, It's he's, he's near. Oh, I like that, that volume. And that volume has different layers to it. It also has the volume, the character of what I ask for, mm-hmm. That's mass, which goes back to Solomon who, you know, where God actually does the exegetical suggestion I made earlier of like thinking of what you should, could have said, but you know, mm. God, God says to Solomon, you could have asked for riches and fame and power, but you know, you asked for wisdom. Yeah. So I'll give you that other stuff too. You know, <laughs> it's like um, in the same way here, like a bitter, jealous, selfish ambition is can become we prayer can expose that in us but also begin to release it yes don't harbor it in your heart ask god pray an imprecatory psalm against your enemies say god i want to win i want to have power defeat my enemies and then as you pray it you might be like then again why don't you clear my heart because maybe i'm maybe i'm unjust too and you pray the prayers of of penitence which are also in the psalms right they're not mutually exclusive uh Dude, I love that. I, this is, I, I want to preach this sermon. I love this passage. I, this is, I'm not certain of this, but most of the, there's a lot of repetition in James. Uh, like he'll treat a topic often two times and it's not a strict chiasm, but he kind of comes back to things, you know, kind of has stuff on prayer at the beginning and prayer on the end in chapter five. And there's some stuff about riches in chapter two that gets repeated in early in chapter five. So there's a kind of, I wouldn't call it a chiasm, but at least a, a kind of loose parallelism. And if you run that logic, this is the central passage in the book of James, the two kinds mm-hmm. of wisdom. And I mentioned that just right here at the end to slip it under the wire to, I, I sometimes wonder if it, this is the heart of the book, you know, like everything can kind of be seen from mm this middle moment. Uh, I could be dead wrong on that. So I don't know why I slipped that in under the wire here, but I guess it's just more my, I've loved this passage for years. I've never preached on it. And I actually, well, you know, I went through James one time and I might've preached on it once, but I don't remember what I said enough. So apparently I didn't like it. So 
I've preached a maximum of one time uh, on this passage many years ago. But I'd really like to craft a, a sermon around this text. And you've given me some great ideas for that. So hopefully our listeners feel the same way. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. Appreciate the time you gave. And thanks to our listeners, as always, for listening to the show and getting the word out about the show. Uh, big thanks especially to our patron saints who support the show. If you want to become a patron saint, go to patreon.com slash fresh text and uh, see ways that you can uh, support the show, get some extra uh, content along with that. Thanks to Todd Narek for the production work. Can't imagine doing this show without him. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>